Halifax takes no back seat, I don't think, when it comes to academia. The REVS is a global network that studies sort of life and health expectancy. It's a very international group from about 100 countries. They're really excited about coming to Halifax. Anchored by our maritime history and shaped by the ocean, Halifax, Nova Scotia is a breath of fresh, salty air. Humble, vibrant, and surrounded by natural wonder, it's an ecosystem for innovation and the ultimate backdrop for your event. This is the Discover Halifax podcast, a podcast about the unique and unparalleled local expertise, innovation and infrastructure of Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada. This is the Discover Halifax podcast. I'm your host, Paul Bailey. With me today is Dr. Zachary Zimmer, Professor of Family Studies and Gerontology and a Canada Research Chair in Global Aging and Community at Mount St. Vincent University. Today we'll be talking about aging, demographic shifts, and the future. Zachary, welcome. Thanks. Really great having you here today. And, and this is a topic I've been really excited to talk about because it's something that we're all going to go through. It's, it's, it's aging. If we're lucky, yeah. If we're lucky. Uh -huh. If I'm lucky, well, we'll see what happens. Uh -huh. If I keep drinking all this coffee, maybe not. But, uh, but it's something where, as I was looking at some research and understanding the area, I didn't realize the global reach some of the research happening right here in Halifax, Nova Scotia actually has. And you are one of the key pieces of that research, if not the key. So I'm excited for this, and and, and let's dig right into it. Uh, Zachary, be, before we get into it and, and get into some of the stuff that I just kind of sort of understand from the notes that you sent me, what is that problem you're trying to solve? Well, my background is in uh, more or less demography, and so I'm, I'm more or less a demographer. I have a PhD in sociology. But uh, what I look at is overarching issues that deal with population aging around the world. I look at issues about how the older population is growing, what the implications of that are for society, and what the implications are for that for older people as well. Because as populations are changing and as the world is getting older, which it is, it's doing so in a really changing environment as well. And so older people are not only growing in numbers, but are also dealing with changing sort of societies, uh, developing economies in a large part of the world, uh, changing healthcare systems, uh, changing environments and things of that nature. You know, we're, we live in a very um, unusual and interesting time in human history where things are happening so rapidly. And what I am studying and I'm trying to, to find out is how all those rapid changes are affecting us, affecting older people and, and the civilizations around them. I think that's really interesting on a whole bunch of different levels, which we're going to get into. And I'm by no means an expert. I, I just happened to be the guy asking some questions here today. But one of the big things that I took away from some of the pieces that you sent me just had to do with when we start looking at the percentage of population that is, you know, 70 plus. When we look at, you know, the mid 60s, I, I think in the notes that you sent me, you know, Sweden had the largest percentage of folks age 70 plus. It was about eight or nine percent. But then we look at what's happening out towards, say, the 2050s, 2060s. You know, you're going to have countries like South Korea that are going to be 31 percent ish, age 70 plus. 
that's a significant change, and with it comes significant considerations, I'm sure. What are you trying to really dig into when it comes to looking at facts like that? What are we trying to take away from it? And more importantly, where do we go next? So as far as the numbers go and the numbers that you just quoted about Sweden having had the oldest population in the world at one point, pretty soon they're going to be nowhere near the oldest population and all these developing countries are now going to have the oldest populations in the world. So especially those in Asia, South Korea, Japan already is quite high, Singapore, Thailand, Malaysia, China, the older population is growing enormously in those countries. So you have two things going on. One is a change in the global structure, you can say, of who's old and who's not old, right? So we're used to the European countries and Canada, the United States sort of looking more older than the rest of the world. That's changing because other parts of the world are going to be surpassing us in terms of their elderly population. And then you have the general increase. So older people all over the world are becoming a larger part of the population. So what does this mean for health? What does this mean for health care? What does this mean for families and um, uh, other sort of social systems going forward? I mean, obviously, there are immense demographic dynamics going on in the world. And I think it's pretty fair to say that the aging of the population is probably the, you know, maybe the single most rapidly changing demographic dynamic going on. So the implications of this for, you know, all parts of society, but in, in particularly for healthcare systems, for families, for communities, for labor, for the economic implications of this are very, very broad. And so part of, you know, what I do is just kind of look at what the future is going to look like. And part of it is also working with uh, organizations, governments around the world, uh, universities, to get some sense of how we prepare for this kind of aging world. And right now, you're engaged in research all around the world. Uh, we were talking a little bit about Vietnam prior to uh, hopping on the, the podcast here. Right. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, the Vietnam Project is quite specific. I work on a large international team. We have funding from uh, the National Institutes of Health in the U.S. We also have funding from the Canadian Institute of Health Research. And we're studying the long-term implications, actually, of the Vietnam War on health and aging of Vietnam citizens currently in Vietnam. So beside all of this aging that's going on, the implications of it are, and the areas that I'm interested in studying, relate to, you know, not only the social changes, but also the health implications of it. So you have in Vietnam, you've got probably the largest population in the world that went through a very serious war and trauma and is now reaching exactly that age that becomes of interest to us who study gerontology, right? People moving into sort of early retirement ages and 70s and 75 when health problems start to crop up. And we've got a, a longitudinal study where we are examining people's involvement in the Vietnam War. People were differentially involved. Uh, some people fought in the war and were uh, had a lot of uh, trauma, other people not so much. And we're looking uh, long-term on whether that has actually had any effect on their health and aging experiences. And we're looking at this at a very deep level. So we've got a large sample of Vietnamese that we're studying. We've done one round of data collection, which happened about three years ago. We're in the middle of doing a second round of data collection now that is 
uh, somewhat delayed because of the COVID situation. The data we're collecting is both based on survey research, so we're asking a lot of questions about people's lives, their experiences during the war, their current health. We're also doing medical tests. We're also taking blood samples. We're also doing biological testing, and we're going to be looking at some genetic outcomes eventually as well. So we're really looking very deep here into the, the even the biological outcomes uh, of you know traumatic experiences and how they influence people's health and really inner biology later on in life. So th- that's a particular project that I'm working on now. I've been working in Southeast Asia on various kinds of topics related to aging and health over many years. I worked a lot in Cambodia, where they also had a very serious traumatic uh, background. But this kind of work has implications for a lot of populations that uh, have experienced trauma, are experiencing trauma, and are moving forward and aging with it. When I hear you speak about the global work that's underway, it, it reminds me of something that's popped up on a lot of the other podcasts that we've recorded, which is how the heck did a small little city called Halifax mm. with a couple universities in a small little province called Nova Scotia <laughs> get involved with something so huge and so globally focused? Like, like this is one of those ones where we're truly shattering a lot of perceptions about what we can accomplish here in Halifax. Absolutely. And, you know, to you know, further put in a plug for our work in Vietnam, I'm working with a large consortium of researchers from really prestigious universities. We're working from people, you know, at Yale University, University of Utah, University of Washington, the Hanoi Medical University, National University of Singapore. I would have to say that our little team here at Mount St. Vincent looks very small in comparison, but not small in terms of our contribution. So it does give a, a kind of a, an indication that, you know, you don't have to be, a, you know, a large university necessarily to contribute, especially in this day and age. And through the COVID period, more and more of our meetings have been online and you can really be just about anywhere and be doing good work these days. And so uh, it does happen in smaller places. But look, Halifax is, you know, takes no back seat, I don't think, when it comes to academia. When I first moved here several years ago, I was really amazed at the resources that exist here in Halifax. Dalhousie University, of course, is well known around the world, St. Mary's, even at Mount St. Vincent, where we do, you know, somewhat different kinds of things than are done at Dalhousie, but, you know, small, but in certain ways uh, recognized and well known. And so it's quite astounding that there is a big academic contingent here in Halifax. Well, and that's exactly it. One of the terms that was brought up on a prior podcast is, you know, punching above our own weight. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were fortunate to have uh, Sharif Mata from Mount St. Vincent as well on uh, to talk about things such as crystallography, to talk about chemistry and physics and how, once again, punching well above the weight. And what I hear when I hear you talk about your work is, once again, this global perspective. It's not something where we're just looking at this from a a singular source. We're looking at this from a perspective, what can we learn elsewhere to inform on our own health, to inform on our own situation, but also help make things better everywhere. Mm -hmm. 
and I think that's really, really interesting because when I start to think about the Atlantic Canadian ecosystem that you're playing in, you've brought in groups from around the world. And that's not something that necessarily happens everywhere. Um, it's very outward focused. So you mentioned that you came here just a few years ago. Tell me a little bit more about when you got here and you started to really put the pieces together. Hey, Halifax is actually kind of a happening place here and we have a whole bunch of pieces that are going to support your research. I arrived here, I, I took this Canada Research Chair position at Mount St. Vincent University. And I would say that it's to the credit of Mount St. Vincent to look for an individual like myself whose work is global. It's really their foresight, right? They are the one that said, this is what we want. We want to develop more of a global outreach. And so I was someone that they were interested in bringing in. And my whole career has been involved in international work. Before coming to Halifax, I was at University of California, San Francisco, very well-known institution for medical research and huge uh, sort of funding that goes to that university. So I was able to bring some of that to Mount St. Vincent University. But I mean, the first thing that became clear to me was that there's lots of resources, not necessarily all at Mount St. Vincent University, but with Dalhousie University and with other places around and, you know, Acadia and, and whatnot, that the maritime provinces generally have some very good academics and some very good academic systems. And we train a lot of people. There are a huge number of individuals that come out of the Maritimes with degrees. And um, I guess it's an issue of what happens to all of those folks, right? Because, I mean, when I first came here, uh, you know, one of the things that I was learning is that a lot of people graduate in Halifax and then don't necessarily find the jobs in Halifax. But, you know, over the last few years, I think that that has been changing. So there's more and more reason to stay. So I wasn't sure what I was going to find when I arrived here, but I was quite happy to see that there's a lot going on if you look broadly. Uh, It doesn't necessarily have to be in the center, in my office, uh, around me where I work. At other places, there is a lot going on, and especially when it comes to areas of health research, which is uh, what I'm involved in. There's uh, a lot of people that are very concerned about health and aging. Um, The Canadian Longitudinal Study on Aging runs out of Halifax. There's a lot of people that do work on that project as well. And when I came in to um, Mount St. Vincent University, uh, my office is located at the um, Nova Scotia Centre on Aging which is a really excellent research center that is well-known around the country, uh, led by um, our uh, director, Janice Keefe, who does a lot of great research, especially these days in long-term care situation, has been really, really involved in long-term care and the relationship with COVID and and what has been going on with long-term care. So right there with me in the same office, there are plenty of people that are concerned about these issues as well. It's quite eye-opening. I'm quite happy, you know, uh, uh, with, you know, having landed here. It's been a great thing for me. Well, it's been a great thing for us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the simple fact is the the story that you're telling is not dissimilar to some others that we've had the chance to talk to where they've come from abroad, mm. they land here, and all of a sudden they're looking around, they're going, hey, wait a minute, this is quite good. I, I've got the people, I've got the resources, yeah. and I've got the support. And it's a great place to live. Yes. Right? So uh, you have all those things going on. 
there's a good reason for the resources uh, to, to be here because it's a resourceful part of the world. That's the interesting part about this. You know, if I step back and look at some of the things that you mentioned, the concept of exporting the graduates elsewhere, we talked about a couple uh, Nobel Prize winners where whether it's neutrinos, whether it's the charged coupled device, these folks were all from Nova Scotia. And yes, they did some of their academic work elsewhere, but their journey started here. Mm -hmm. And then they went elsewhere. Whereas now what we're finding is if you go to Dalhousie University and you talk computer sciences, they built a building about 20 years ago. Now the thing's too small. Mm. Whereas when they moved in, I can remember the stars. It's like, well, we're never going to fill this thing. And here we are because we're seeing that culture of learning, that culture of collaboration, that culture want to stay here and support what's happening here, but with that global outlook. Yeah. yeah, I think you put your finger really on it. Is It's both a local and a community thing going on and wanting to be part of the global community as well. You know, locally, there's a lot of support. There's a lot of collaboration people working together. There's a lot of, you know, movement in a good direction. And folks are also looking outwards as well and saying, how can we also contribute to the what's going on globally? And especially with respect to academia, I have found that what I do has been very well received. It's fantastic to, to have sort of an international component to the work that would otherwise be, you know, somewhat more local. And it's really well appreciated. And the other thing about your work that I find so interesting is the fact that it really does cross sectors. A couple episodes ago, we talked about the cross-sector collaboration that takes place in Nova Scotia. But here you are researching something like aging, but then when you start to break down all the implications across whether it is healthcare, life sciences, technology, urban design. I just see the list going on because this is something that's profoundly going to change the way that all of us live, even if we're not in that older cohort of the population. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I've found talking to others really exists here in Nova Scotia, where if you want to go and talk to an economist and you happen to be doing aging, great. Mm -hmm. Here they are. And here's some of the best of the best. Or if you want to talk to somebody about urban design, great. We have that at this university. Or if it's not here, as Martha Casey said from Volta, we also have the links to go out and find the right people. Mm-hmm. We're not afraid to say, hey, hey, you down in the U.S. Northeast, mm-hmm. Harvard, Yale, wherever, I need some of your expertise. That's you know, right. it's interesting because it goes both ways. Yeah, yeah. And the aging field is is interesting to talk about in that respect because it is such an interdisciplinary sort of field. So those of us who are involved in aging – You know, you just can't be just an economist or just a demographer or just a biologist, you know. The projects that we work on, this project I was mentioning in in Vietnam, I mean, we have people on this team that are economists and biologists and demographers and sociologists and psychologists, you know, the the, the people from Yale are are in the psychology department there and medical uh, folks as well. So there's this great kind of interdisciplinary thing that's going on here in Halifax, but also with respect to the different disciplines and different topics that we're interested in. You know, you have to work sort of cross-disciplinary, and that creates more community and more collaboration as well. We talked a little bit about it beforehand, you know, demographic transition, especially post-1750. That seems to be the area where things really 
changed right. more than anything else. Looking at all the charts that you provided and, and, and reading your, the chapter you wrote, the one thing I took away is everything kind of went at the pace it was going. Everything was what it was, but then 1750, revolution hits, everything else hits, and then boom, things start to change. Yeah. What's that next point in our world where we see this change? Because we know where we're going, which is towards populations that are older. They're also a larger part of the population. You know, it's not just, okay, cool, the average age is now instead of 55, it's now 57. It's now, but look, we got this huge chunk at the top. Yeah. What's next? So it's an interesting question. I mean, you've asked a question which is very broad and I could could sort of (laughs) answer it in many different ways, right? The the what's next is, uh, could be many different things. A few of the things that are, I think, front and center in people's mind is what is now happening with human longevity, right? Mm. So as you say, you know, around the time of the Industrial Revolution is when these major changes in population started to take place. So because of various reasons, uh, access to better food and water and, and, and certain sort of medical things, but to a great extent, public health knowledge, people started to live longer, started to get to live past the age where they could start more people living to the ages where they could start having kids of their own. And so families, you know, got bigger and bigger. And that led down the line to all the things that we see today. Eventually, reductions in fertility and reductions in family sizes, and then this population aging that we have now. But together with the population aging, people are also living longer, right? So it seems that every decade the life expectancy has gone up. If you just look at a graph and you graph life expectancy for, let's say, the the, the world, you don't see any periods of decline over the last couple hundred years. You only see periods of increase. And so where 20, 30, 40 years ago, they said, well, we're probably at the top end of human lifespan now. I mean, people are living to 80, whatever. That's probably as high as we go. We keep crashing those barriers and living longer and longer. So a major question of where we go is how, you know, what's going to happen to human longevity into the future? Is it going to continue to increase? Are we eventually going to hit uh, the point where it's topped off? There's a lot of debate about that. Uh, There's a lot of speculation about how our increasing knowledge about human genetics may play into this. And I think that's one of the areas that, that people are going to be looking at quite carefully. The other thing is, is that as this aging takes place and as people are living longer as we are, as I said, are we living healthier as well? Right. Uh, does the increase in life expectancy come with concomitant in increases in, in health expectancy? Uh, are those older years happy years, good years, satisfying years? And uh, if we're going to increase our life expectancy, if we're all going to live to 100, as some people, you know, project may be, mm-hmm. uh, we certainly want to live there, you know, and, and be, be sort of satisfied with our lives as well. So this becomes also a huge question and, and another question to answer over what's next. I think, uh, you know, sooner in, in the time frame, there's a lot of places around the world that are concerned about the higher uh, growth in older mm-hmm. persons. So when you start to get 30, 40% of your population being in retirement age, what happens to, 
to economic development, what happens to uh, to families and social systems. And, you know, that is that is coming around the corner much sooner, I think, uh, than some of these other problems. So those are some of the what's next. Are you ready to jump in and learn more? Stay tuned for the second half of the conversation. And then visit www.businesseventshalifax.com to get the full story on why Halifax, Nova Scotia makes perfect sense for your next event. Well, and I think a little of that's probably getting recognized. I know that you're working with one of my colleagues, Jeff Turner, on a conference right now that you're bringing to Halifax or trying to bring to Halifax. Oh, you're you're talking about the Revs conference? I am, yes. So um, REVS is a, it's a French acronym, and I wish I had it actually in front of me, but uh, it's a global network that studies sort of life and health expectancy. So life expectancy we're all f- sort of familiar with, and as populations age and, and as we live longer and longer, which we are, life expectancy becomes an important issue. Health expectancy is the part of life expectancy that we can expect to live in a healthy state. And the overall goal, I guess, of much of gerontological research is to, as my colleague Janice Keith says, add health to life, right? Add healthy years. It doesn't make sense for us to be focusing on living longer and longer if those years that we're living longer and longer are not necessarily in good health. So the REVS group studies health expectancy, studies how we're aging in terms of our health as as well as our length of life, and whether the two are moving simultaneously, whether life expectancy is moving faster than health expectancy. And um, there are some of the most um, distinguished uh, health scholars, demographers, health economists that are uh, members of this group. It's a very international group. There's probably people from about 100 countries that are members of REVS. And um, they meet every year. Uh, for the last two years, because of the COVID, uh, it's been not possible to meet. And so our first meeting uh, back after this uh, hiatus is going to be here in Halifax, September 2022. We're just getting going on the planning of that. That's going to bring a lot of people to Halifax. It's going to bring uh, a lot of well-known scholars to Halifax. It's going to be, I think, a really interesting, interesting event. And that's just so exciting when you start to bring the thought leaders here. Mm. Like we talked about a little bit prior to the, the recording, you know, having people come and experience the ecosystem that exists here is not something that you can necessarily do through video or you can do through a single person going and presenting in Las Vegas or somewhere else right. like that. When people show up here and they can get into this world that we live in, yeah. I think there's something truly special about that. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't say oddly, but um, my colleagues who are members of this organization, it's a small academic group. You know, there's not thousands of people involved. It's more hundreds than thousands. But they're really excited about coming to Halifax. And the locations where the REVS conference uh, usually takes place are, you know, quite exotic. Uh, it's you know places like Barcelona, Shanghai. Uh, we've met in Amsterdam. And people are very excited to come. Together with the conference, I'm going to be uh, running a pre-conference workshop, which will uh, be a few days of training. We'll be bringing in um, PhD students from across the country, uh, postdocs who are working across the country and and in, in other places. And some of the REVs, 
people to to do a, a several day workshop to train in sort of the methodologies, the techniques, and the theories that are involved in the study of health expectancy, because uh, it's quite technical actually in some respects. And um, Canada did have a lot of interest in the field in the past, especially at Stats Canada. There were uh, people in the past that were working on uh, models of health expectancy. And so I would like to get some of that going again and have more Canadians working in that area. So we're going to run a a workshop and then the conference afterwards, and uh, it, it should be quite good. I think these conferences are a great way to kick that type of thinking back off. Mm-hmm. Um, what we have found is once you host a conference and you get that light shining back on it, it's amazing how some of the stars can line back up. I know that there's other groups here in Nova Scotia who are definitely leveraging conferences for the same kind of mm. ultimate purpose. Let's get the light back on something that's truly relevant. Let's shine that baby up and then take it for a test drive, as it mm-hmm, were. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not something that uh, should be a secret to anyone in the conference and meetings world. But it's certainly something where I think a lot of academics, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of folks that might have not necessarily hosted a conference in the past have really taken that perspective and are running with, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is not something that's, like I said, new to us, but it seems to be a new way of thinking in, in terms of getting that out there. Yeah. You know, post-conference, you know, what are your expectations? Yeah, we're working on it now, yeah. but definitely we would like to see some scholarly products come out of this. And I would like to see some involvement in across Canada in th- these areas of health and aging that I'm concerned about. So I'd like to, yeah, as you say, shine a light on yeah. this on this topic, get more people interested. And I think it will happen. And and I think it will, you know, bringing a prestigious event like this to Halifax, I think will, will kickstart other things uh, in the same field and, and probably will bring in some interest of people who are students right now and studying, you know, parallel kinds of subject matter that may be, you know, interested specifically in these issues of health expectancy. As a professor, as a research chair, I know, well, I don't know. I'm I'm assuming a little bit here (laughs) (laughs) that in the past, you know, research really ended up with that publication more than anything else. Yeah. Is this another path when it comes to academics looking to kind of build on to their research in terms of doing conferences? You know, I mean, publications are still important. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's still the the bread and butter of the scholarly right. system. What's interesting is, in addition to publications, there's been more and more emphasis on knowledge translation, on how we can use the knowledge that's being generated for the good of society. And conference work is certainly one way of doing it, and it's one way of spreading the word and spreading the knowledge, but it's also a, a way of, of people gaining experience and gaining training so that they too can work towards academic development, but also knowledge translation. So more and more in that of that, I think, is becoming important. What I am interested in is that whole quality of life mm. piece. And what's interesting is the more research I do in that area, it seems like quality of life starts very early. It's something where those investments made early on have significant dividends later. And I know that Nova Scotia has been spending some time talking about quality life and what those indicators could be, should be, and where they're going with that. 
It's interesting that you say that because I think in my field of gerontology, what has become more and more critical is this idea of life course, mm -hmm. right? The idea that aging is not a particular point in time. Aging is an entire life experience. And what happens early in life is going to affect what happens later in life. And that's why we're studying the impacts of war on health and aging, because we want to know does stress and trauma that's experienced, you know, much earlier in life come back to hit you later on in life? Or is there, you know, does it does it lead to some sort of resiliency and, and actually have some beneficial uh, aspects? But if you look across the whole spectrum of human life, you look at diets and exercise and, you know, what happens with social relationships and satisfaction with those throughout our entire life is going to have an effect when we, mm. when we get older. And so I think incumbent upon us to be looking at the entire life course when we're interested in quality of life at old age and not just to look at what happens when someone turns old. Mm -hmm. Because by that time, there, there is a lot that's already sort of baked in. More and more of the field of gerontology is becoming a field of actually, you know, looking at the entire span of life. Well, Zachary, this has been exciting. This is something I've been, to be honest with you, this is something I've been looking forward to. I've got a meeting with my banker in a couple of weeks to talk about my retirement plan. <laughs> yeah. So anything I can glean from this is a, <laughs> is a good thing. Yeah. Um, what do you have uh, planned in your future? Is there anything you'd like to share in terms of upcoming research beyond what you're doing over in uh, in Asia? Do you have anything else coming down the pipe? So one of the other areas that I've been working, there's a sev several different areas of research that I've worked. Actually, my my career has been sort of quite eclectic. I mean, I've been I've been essentially uh, interested in you know life and well being of older people around the world, and and I've jumped into projects here and there wherever I can uh, make a contribution to that. And uh, so it's been quite eclectic. And lately, I've been working with a number of colleagues on the topic of chronic pain. Hmm. Chronic pain is another is a really uh, it's interesting. I mean, it's a really important. Uh, area and again, as we're looking at quality of life in old age, you know, chronic pain becomes quite an important aspect of that because you know much of you know disablement that happens in in older age is really tied to chronic pain, and yet we know so little. Uh, there's so much unknown about chronic pain, and the fact is that what we've been studying, myself and some uh, colleagues of mine, have been looking at um, the demography of chronic pain. And uh, what we have been showing and have been publishing over the last number of years are studies that show that chronic pain has been on the increase. The prevalence of chronic pain has been increasing in Canada, in the United States, in fact, in a lot of places all over the world over the last number of decades. And it's very difficult to determine why, because it's not necessarily tied to any specific approximate cause, specific disease. It's not an increase, for example, in arthritis and, or something, mm -hmm. something like that. So it's a bit of a mystery. There's no doubt about it that um, you know, more people suffer from chronic pain today than they did 20, 30, 40 years ago. And I think it's an important question to figure out what is going on there. That's another area of research that I'm involved in, and it should lead to quite some interesting studies. Well, uh, Zachary, as, as things come along mm -hmm. and as you dig into that, I, I have a feeling that uh, maybe we'll have a whole nother uh, podcast where we'll be able to sit down and talk about chronic pain I and, would love and, to, yeah. and how yeah. things end up uh, with your research in Vietnam and, yeah. and go from there. Yeah. But, uh, you know, thank you for your time today. And thanks for coming in and being a part of this. Uh, I think that this is just another 
perfect example of the global work that's happening in Nova Scotia. And it's people like you that are making it happen. So thank you for that. Well, thanks, Paul, for having me in here and my uh, and my uh, my assistant, Rini, who uh, who always tries to get me uh, to get out there and uh, and be more visible. So thank you, Rini, as well for shipping me out to you. (laughs) Well, with that said, uh, thanks to everyone listening at home or at the office or wherever you happen to be. This is Paul Bailey, and this has been the Discover Halifax podcast. Halifax, Nova Scotia is ready to host you. Whatever you're gathering for from wherever in the world you are, you'll feel right at home here. Halifax is home to a diverse collection of memorable places to meet and stay. Plus, we have all the collaborators to help your event go off without a hitch. And when it comes to nailing down the details, consider Discover Halifax your partner in planning. Visit www.businesseventshalifax.com to learn more, take virtual tours, and meet Team Halifax. Halifax.